0: The Research and Practice podcast, supporting
1: evidence-informed practice with children and families. So I'm here today with Carleen Furman, who's the head of the Contextual Safeguarding Program at the University of Bedfordshire. Hi, Carleen. Hi, Des and carline and her colleagues have written our most recent briefing which is for strategic managers and explains uh, the different ways in which exploitation uh, and safeguarding particularly in the context of complex contextual and holistic approaches can play out so thank you very much that's a lovely bit of work so Briefly, do you want to just explain to listeners what we mean by complex, contextual and holistic approaches when we're talking about safeguarding and exploitation?
0: Briefing is a good uh, term to start with, There, So, briefly, I will explain. Um, so, when we talk about complex, uh, really what we're doing is thinking about the additional considerations that would have to make when working with a teenagers, young people during adolescence um, and the different types of experiences that they may have compared to more uh, intrafamilial forms of child abuse that we are m- more used to working with so we're not talking about physical abuse for example uh, we may be talking about uh, criminal exploitation sexual exploitation um, how do we respond to those issues and how do we work with young people and parents as partners in our response to those issues engaging with the particular dynamics of adolescence that we often see as challenges but we would hope we could as opportunities um, in terms of young people's choice making and their role in uh, kind of working alongside us to create safety and seeing parents as part of that as well. contextual really focuses on the additional contexts that um, young people may be vulnerable in um, as they move through adolescence. So in earlier childhood, we would predominantly be focused on the family home, although not exclusively, obviously we'd need to think about their safety in school um, and other uh, settings, nurseries. But as young people move through adolescence and spend more time independently of parental supervision and socialising in spaces and places within their communities, in neighbourhood settings, online settings, with their peers um, and in educational settings. The nature of those contexts needs to be considered when we're thinking about how we keep young people safe and we know a number of risks that young people experience during adolescence will play out in those extra-familial contexts. So contextual really is thinking about how we engage with those contexts. And holistic uh, really is making reference to uh, the fact that what we have seen um, in recent years is um, differing attention being paid to particular forms of extrafamilial risk or different forms of exploitation. So there may be a focus on child sexual exploitation currently there's a focus on criminal exploitation there's also been a focus on radicalization for example and what we've done to what we've tended to do is to split those so we have our response to sexual exploitation and we have our response to criminal exploitation and to gangs and youth violence and um, and what we're seeing more and more is the need to offer a holistic response to all of those issues because despite their many differences and there are differences between those uh, forms of abuse in the way they're experienced and in fact as we need to consider there are also some key um Uh, kind of identifying features but also key challenges that we face in trying to respond to them and it's thinking about how do we address those key challenges, those fundamentals um, that we want to see develop more in a holistic approach. Really to bring it to light I would say think about trying to respond to physical abuse experienced by children sexual abuse experienced by children, neglect experienced by children emotional abuse experienced by children without a child protection system so we've just developed a response to physical abuse just sitting off in its own ether room. it sits completely separate to any response we might have to emotional abuse even though we know that they often intersect for young people and we have a wider system that is equipped to respond to all forms of abuse what we've had to do is then build up specialism in the nature of those different forms of abuse and how uh, they affect young people. Um, but we haven't built that specialism in a vacuum. It sits within a more holistic response to child abuse. And that's what we need to see for exploitation as well.
1: And I think we see some of that, that fragmentation you described partly driven by uh, service design, um, but also partly driven by funding patterns. So, And even driven perhaps by uh, where political attention is focused actually at the time so Mm -hmm. uh, you know I know that in many local areas they have a CSE team which is separate from their gangs team and then they have another specialist county lines team and then somewhere you know in a very different part of the building uh, there's some specialists working around neglect Mm -hmm. yet we know of course that for many adolescents, not only adolescents, Mm -hmm. I know this can affect younger children, um, they might be experiencing all of those things or be experiencing some of them at risk of others so we haven't created a holistic system No. And I guess that part of the complexity comes, and you highlighted it earlier, in that uh, whilst it can feel like a nice, neat delineation to have intrafamilial harm affecting younger yeah. children and extrafamilial harm affecting older children, we also know there's sometimes a really cross. Many pa- parents are, you know, we've talked about this before. We, many parents are absolutely protective. Uh, of their older children and are uh, doing their best to keep them safe and need to be treated as partners in that safeguarding uh, approach and that agenda. Mm -hmm. And we also know that sometimes intrafamilial factors can exacerbate risk and vulnerability Mm -hmm. for older Mm -hmm. children. So that, that, I guess, is where the real complexity Mm -hmm. comes. And Mm -hmm. um, I know that when we've worked in local areas, one of the key things is getting practitioners to hold on to the fact that it's both and Mm -hmm. not either or. So Mm -hmm. trying to do away with some of the false neatness
0: Absolutely,
1: can. absolutely. Some of the challenge here is that our existing frameworks, if you like, our traditional child protection system, um, wasn't designed with these complex contemporary adolescent risks in mind. And uh, I'm sometimes uh, quite uh, struck by the sense that the purpose has outgrown the design. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, of course, creates quite a lot of discomfort in mm-hmm. the sector. Mm-hmm. Um, is that something that would resonate with you in your work? In
0: yes, absolutely. I think where we have really struggled is that... Um, we recognise, and rightly so, that issues such as criminal exploitation or sexual exploitation are abuse, um, and they are experienced as forms of abuse. And uh, children have a right to be protected from them, um, and the state should intervene. And um, but what we've kind of ended up in the situation is we've just said that there are forms of child abuse, and then assumed that therefore the child abuse structures and systems that we have in place will respond to them as forms of child abuse, without recognising that actually the system was only really ever intended to respond to specific forms of child abuse Um, and that's really where we've come short and it's not just in practice it runs through our policy framework so when we really look at our guidelines when we really look at our policies that we draw upon to develop our systems there is constant reference to the need to assess and intervene with families, with the child and family, uh, what is going on in that family, how can we build up uh, the capacity of that family to be more protective for that child, there is hardly any reference at all uh, to peers, for example. Uh, as a significant relationship that we should be working with. Which
1: is extraordinary, really, when you think that most conservative estimates um, would suggest that a third of all child sexual abuse is actually instigated by other children, and yet Mm -hmm. we don't actually have a statutory definition for harmful sexual behaviour. So we can kind of see that our gaze has been um, focused in certain areas, notwithstanding the evidence of whether that form of harm is particularly prevalent.
0: Yes, absolutely. And so what we've seen then is a kind of shoehorning sometimes of um, our responses to these more complex issues into a system that wasn't designed for them. So we see parents on child protection plans for neglect, and when you drill down, Yes, there may be more that the parents could do, maybe, in some of these cases, obviously. Um, but if we removed the fact that there's an organised crime group exploiting that child, would the behaviour of those parents warrant a child protection plan? Probably not in a number of these cases. We need to think about the interplay between what the parents are doing and what the risk is. What we can sometimes see is that there's a risk of significant harm outside of the family and you've got a family in need of support or in need of some early help but because of the risk of significant harm we actually respond to the family um, as being a cause of significant harm and that becomes a real problem for us a isolates the parents but b it actually doesn't necessarily reduce the risk because you can uh, do work with parents and we do do work with parents where that work is needed Um, But simply equipping parents to instill more boundaries will not remove a drug debt that's hanging over the head of a young person or remove the threat that they've received that their house will be set on fire if they don't attend this party house where they're going to be sexually assaulted. So we really need to think about whether the plan we have in place for that family and child is actually going to reduce the risk of significant harm. Um, And just focusing focusing on parents in most of these cases will not reduce the risk of significant harm. It may increase the protective nature of the family, but that in and of itself won't necessarily safeguard young people from exploitation.
1: And I've heard, I've got lots of sympathy with those who argue that when we talk about um, parental capacity to change and family safety, we really mean mothers.
0: Absolutely. Breach
1: Featherstone and others have uh, written at length about this, that there is a punitive um, nature, particularly around issues of neglect, but other forms mm-hmm. of child maltreatment, where really we are uh, we're seeking to change mum's behaviour, mum's mm. quote-unquote choices. Um, and in fact, our understanding of parental capacity to change is often uh, sort of understood through a lens of intrinsic mm-hmm. capabilities. If mum, often mum, not exclusive, if mum would just leave this person who presents... As violent, if mum would uh, address her mental health difficulties, if mum could overcome her substance misuse, but actually in the context of you know many of these kind of complex contemporary harms facing adolescents in particular, uh, the parents' capacity. Uh, is undermined by extrinsic factors, by organised criminal gangs, Mm -hmm. by those who are extremely Mm -hmm. adept at targeting children and exploiting them.
0: Yes, absolutely. And even when we think about children who are being um, exploited um, by peers, you know, when I've reviewed cases of, for example, there was one young woman I reviewed a case of who uh, was being sexually exploited by a group of 14 15-year-olds when she was 13. Um, And that was happening at school and in the community setting. Now there were challenges at home and she had already been known to social care for those challenges and support was going into place. There was very little that her mother and grandmother could do to prevent her from being sexually exploited at school. I mean, they, apart from stop sending her there, I mean, that was literally mm. all that could happen. Um, we really needed to think about what the role could be of the school leadership in that case and pastoral care in the school, a uh, work with the young people who were actually exploited her and that work not just being framed as whether well, the police are proceeding or not but what do we do regardless of a criminal investigation to uh, create healthier and safer relationships between young people in that school setting that really needed to be the focus but because of the system that we operate in the school was not the focus uh, the peer group was not the focus it was her mother and grandmother um, and what they could do to keep her safer when she was at school
1: so we have a system that um, wasn't designed for the needs and risks that people face and then practitioners often working within that system who, I think it would be fair to say, often become quite demoralised mm-hmm. feel very frustrated because they can recognise that mm-hmm. uh, if you like the tools they've got aren't always fit for the job in hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and a real complexity, I think, that it's a personal view. I sometimes wonder whether we just like simplicity. We like the idea that there are goodies and baddies and victims and villains and children and adults and um, and that there's a really hard and fast line between those when, of course, we know this stuff is riddled with complexity. Children having dual identities as both victim and perpetrator of harm, Uh, parents being both protective and being Mm -hmm. perhaps a form uh, or a source of, of need and exacerbated vulnerability and uh, I do sometimes wonder whether part of the issue here is, is cultural yeah. and psychosocial.
0: Yeah absolutely and I think that really does speak to why we really should be moving towards the direction of holistic approaches where we try our best not to create false separations between victims or perpetrators or different experiences and issues because that's not how they're lived and we make it worse for ourselves and much harder for ourselves when we insist on creating
1: these divides. Yes, it's false neatness. Mm -hmm. Um, So this briefing then that you and your team have authored for research and practice uh, is really timely. It really sets out some of these key issues Um, and I know that when we talked about uh, planning it um, we were really keen that it would Sort of help senior managers think about the need for strategic redesign. Do you want to um, offer reflections? What what was it like writing the briefing? How did you find it? Do you feel that you fulfilled? Uh, what you set out to do
0: Uh, it was a really enjoyable briefing to work on with the team because while when we've been doing training and presentations we've had to increasingly speak to the intersection between different forms of exploitation and what this means for practice responses sitting down and thinking how do you communicate that on paper rather than in person was um, a good challenge to have and really also forcing us to think about where these forms of exploitation may intersect, both in how they're experienced and how they're responded to and what that could mean for how we strategically enhance or advance our our kind of setup of our services and the way we support practice. Um, So what we've hoped to have done with the briefing is really enable local areas to think about how they can progress their work, drawing upon some examples of practice from around the country, but also thinking um, about things like, do we have a system that is equipped to respond to grooming in all its forms, rather than do we have a system that's equipped to respond to criminal exploitation versus CSE, versus radicalization and so on and so forth. Because actually, whether or not we can engage with the impacts of grooming and a young person's insistence that this is their choice is more important than the specific context in which that um, choices being framed or made, and we see this tension now playing out with criminal exploitation. Because we thought we'd sorted that argument, we thought, yeah, absolutely, you can't kind of engage in any victim-blaming behaviour. Young person cannot choose to be abused. We shouldn't be doing this, and we're not going to do it anymore for sexual exploitation. And obviously, we still have some errors in practice, but we also see improvement. Yet when we look at criminal exploitation, we see the same language being used. They're making lifestyle choices, they're refusing to engage with us. Hang on a minute, I thought we'd already bottomed that out. This is what happens when you say we can respond to an issue rather than the challenge that issue presents.
1: Absolutely, it's about not seeing the child behind the presenting Mm -hmm. behaviour. Mm -hmm. I think um, uh, that point about not transferring our learning from sexual exploitation is really well made. We, We are seeing very many examples where children who are affected by criminal exploitation are being talked about as if we have learnt nothing mm-hmm. in the past decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He puts himself at yeah, risk. Absolutely. Um, and I think that even within uh, sexual exploitation, uh, I wonder sometimes whether we've seen a shifting of language, but now we're just codifying and the same mm-hmm. intent is there. So whilst uh, you know many professionals, if not all, have stopped using words like promiscuous about victims of sexual exploitation, I wonder how different the meaning is behind sanitised language like risky Mm -hmm, behaviours or Mm risk-taking adolescents. Mm -hmm. There's still an inference that we can locate blame and choice and rationality in the person being harmed. Mm -hmm. So I'm a bit cautious of, Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can sometimes feel that you're reading a document and you can almost see the tipex and all the the meaning and the sense making is still there. We've just changed a couple of words and that spirits me sometimes
0: absolutely i think any kind of terminology that individualizes these very social problems is going to get us in a sticky situation over time um, because it doesn't shift the cultural framing of those issues it just makes it a bit more comfortable for people Um, and really this work isn't comfortable it's we should feel that discomfort because it's a highly challenging field to work in it's not easy and the harm that is done to children um, is severe so we should feel discomfort we should be challenging ourselves if it feels like we're not having to critically think about how we're engaging with the situation and we're just kind of responding using the words that we know we should then we're probably not Kind of utilising our skill set to actually provide a young person with the response they need.
1: I totally agree and I think Mm -hmm. reflecting on your point there about how um, if we focus on the issue and not the commonalities, uh, one example that always springs to mind is that adolescents' attachment needs and their their need for belonging, Um, whilst there's certainly not a neat cause or pathway into these different forms of exploitation, one of the common factors that comes up quite often is uh, the young person's attachment needs, mm-hmm. their, their desire to belong, their need for intimacy, their absolutely reasonable human need for intimacy, and that some forms or manifestations of both criminal and sexual exploitation, mm-hmm. and arguably some forms of radicalization, mm-hmm. although the research is not, no, it's not there, well, you know, not there yet, mm-hmm. so we should be cautious, there is a sense that we as a system are not meeting those attachment mm-hmm. needs, and so others are. Mm-hmm and yet very rarely do i hear a really sharp focus on adolescent attachment in the way you do in early years services for example so we We're getting better at addressing the presenting risk of sexual exploitation, or the presenting risk of a a young person affected by gangs. We're not, as a whole system, gearing up to think about a young person's need for belonging.
0: No, absolutely, and working with the grain of adolescence across all of those factors. So, what we see is this young person who is taking risks, which is a phrase that I struggle with but yes, that's what we hear, a young person who is only really motivated for the weekend instead of the five years that we want them to be able to visualise um, a young person who is happy one minute, sad the next immediately attached to somebody we don't want them to be and feeling this intense connection with them and they're falling out with that person and feeling like it's the worst thing that's ever happened to them and wanting to make all these decisions on their own without our input at all and when that encounters the system that we have that's just a big problem for us and we can then load the problem on the child, they won't engage with us, uh, you know, they are do it, making these choices, they are problematic, they are making lifestyle choices, continuing to put themselves at risk. That's how we then engage and what's even more concerning with that whole um, kind of narrative is that this presentation that we struggle with so much is also a dream for anyone that wants to exploit a child. Um, so we make it doubly hard for ourselves and easier for them because they will provide those thrills and risks and they will uh, provide that emotional uh, kind of intensity that that young person may be experiencing and recognize its authenticity and not say that it doesn't really mean anything and they will provide them with gains for the weekend and tell them not to worry about five years you know they will enable them to perceive that they are making choices for themselves and that no people would understand you but i believe in you you're making the right decisions So they actually work with the grain of adolescence. We push against
1: it and
0: we lose. I
1: think that's a really, really important point that's sometimes overlooked, that when we're talking about service and system design and practice models, um, we need to recognize that those who seek to harm our kids are much more attuned to adolescent mm-hmm. development than we are. Yeah. Um. Unlike us, they don't have thresholds, they yeah. don't gatekeep their resources, they don't have age limits, they don't walk away at 80, we do. Yeah. They are there for our kids before we get there and long after we've gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are able to uh, I would suggest they're able to identify vulnerability and target it much more effectively than mm-hmm. any system we mm-hmm. have Absolutely. professionally.
0: Now I'd also say obviously they're based in the context that we struggle to reach so yes. we're busy focusing solely really on parenting uh, and they kind of work with that distancing of parenting and actually locate themselves in online spaces on high streets, in shopping centres, uh, infiltrate our education systems through young people that we are already isolating and marginalising through exclusions um, and can be present for young people in those spaces. And
1: actually we feed that sense of isolation. Isolation is an important word here. Some of the um, system and service responses to adolescent risk and harm, um, we might, if we were tough on ourselves, recognise that they are further isolating. So I often think of Karen Triesman's words when she talks about how relational harm requires relational repair. And yet too often the responses we offer to young people facing risk are relational severance. Mm -hmm. We'll move you out of home, we'll remove you from your school, we'll put you in a different community, we'll put you in an isolation booth because you're just too naughty, and we'll move you out of area, we'll put you in 23 hours a day uh, Mm lock-up. So we are actually creating greater isolation and exacerbating those really primal needs that young people might have which then people who seek to harm them can exploit.
0: And I think we have to do is recognise the professional anxiety that sits underneath those decisions because you know, I completely understand and recognise that fear that if I don't move that child or I don't separate them from those people that I might not see that child again or they were missing for six weeks last time and I don't know when they'll come back. I don't want that on my conscience, let alone on my professional record. I don't want that. Um, And when we fixate on the fact that we have to be seen to do something rather than think is this going to be the thing that actually creates Safety for that young person. We see that um, real focus on the f- physical safety of that young person, and to draw upon the work of Lucy Shuka and others, a real lack of attention to the relational safety that that child may have access to where they are, um, and the psychological safety that we need to try to preserve for that young person.
1: I would say there's actually a fourth lens um, to consider, which is around their developmental Mm -hmm. safety. I mean, too often, and this comes up a lot uh, in local areas where they describe children's services for very understandable reasons, feeling they've run out of options and identifying that, uh, you know, usually quite a high cost um, and often out of area uh, provision for a young person, a very secure provision in in Mm -hmm. many cases, and that provision not meeting their relational and psychological needs and not meet their developmental needs, primarily because of course when that young person turns 18, adult Mm -hmm. services again understandably take one look at that care package and say we can't and won't fund this, this young person is not believed to lack capacity now Mm -hmm. they're over 18, Mm -hmm. there is no justification for us uh, keeping them in this place, this provision often far Mm -hmm. from home. Mm Um And so then, too many young people return to their communities, having not been equipped, not being skilled up, not having had good transition planning, and they're back in the same neighborhood. Uh where they were facing risk just a few months or years earlier.
0: Absolutely which is why in the briefing we also discuss uh, transitional safeguarding as part of this holistic and complex response um, to um, safeguarding and exploitation. Um, we really cannot um, be stifled by these artificial um, Kind of boundaries that we've put in place around our services and particularly at least thinking up to 25 and what we don't want is then to create a cliff edge at 25. Yeah. So the transition process is really important and I've heard you talk very uh, clearly about the need for that kind of ramp or slope uh, so that we've got a process rather than a cliff edge and I think we really do need to think about that but absolutely thinking about it beyond 18 and, and not stopping there is going to be critical for these issues and what we're hoping is some of the approaches that we flag in the briefing are ones that don't only apply to those under 18 and actually if we do them well they should start to leverage a response that is more holistic across these age boundaries.
1: Talk us through the flow of the briefing then for any listeners who haven't yet read it.
0: Sure. So, uh, the way we've tried to structure the briefing is to first kind of introduce the nature of exploitation, talk about the definitions and the particularly the intersections uh, between different forms of exploitation and what they share in common, albeit ac- acknowledging their differences, before then kind of highlighting some of the strategic challenges that are posed by the national frameworks that we're working within. I think that's really important to put out. We recognise there isn't a national strategy on exploitation, there isn't a national strategy on adolescence, so we are asking areas to do something that we're not being given leadership on at the moment, when there is not a kind of direction of travel that sits across the country. So we have to think about how we work within that deficit that we currently have. Before kind of outlining some key considerations for developing more effective responses that are holistic do address conditional issues and do provide more a holistic response, drawing upon examples of local practice and also identifying some uh, key terminology such as complex safeguarding or contextual safeguarding or transitional safeguarding that we're seeing used more frequently and what they mean in terms of structural redesign and that they're not interventions they are system change pieces of work uh, before thinking about what strategic leaders might want to consider um, as actions to take to enable a workforce to begin to uh, kind of move in this direction of practice.
1: And we've deliberately focused on strategic uh, Mm -hmm. managers with this briefing. I I mean, I I guess to state the obvious because it was within their gift to change the system and the services, whereas practitioners can only work within the systems and services. Yes, absolutely.
0: It's really interesting because we often get asked to do training on these issues and we're then faced with frontline practitioners. We do a day's training with them and they feel very enthusiastic and optimistic about uh, what we're presenting, but also uh, and anxious about whether or not they're actually going to be equipped to do any of the things that they're now wanting to do, uh, wanting to know is this a position of management, is there going to be a move in this direction. So it's really important, I think, for strategic leaders to engage in this conversation and think, um, are the systems, structures, commissioning decisions, training offers we've got in place going to enable the workforce to move in this direction?
1: Now, we've touched on terminology there, and um, no. I know that both you and I are huge fans of uh, the colleagues in Greater Manchester, Uh, so the term complex safeguarding, although it can mean many different things to many people, um, uh, it, it was coined in Greater Manchester. Uh, I guess because colleagues there were really keen to recognise and work with some of the commonalities and now they define complex safeguarding as being uh, criminal behaviour or behaviours associated with criminality where there is exploitation um, and where children's safety is compromised mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they've gone for a, a structural solution to that they've actually revamped how their services yes. work
0: So they have got kind of complex safeguarding hubs that specifically work with these issues, bring um, professionals together, co-located around these intersecting issues rather than issue-specific hubs. They also um, are drawing upon learning from their innovation work around working with young people um, as partners in developing alternative-type safeguarding plans um, and achieving change together plans where they're thinking about how can they work alongside the young person and the parent to reduce risks of exploitation. So it is thinking about... um, how these risks intersect, building an expertise in the hub around those intersecting risks, but also enabling the workforce to actually engage with the nature of adolescents as they respond to those issues.
1: Yes, you're quite right, Carleen. The complex safeguarding work has drawn on learning from the Achieving Change Together project that was run in Wigan and Rochdale, funded by the DFE Social Care Innovation Project. And listeners who want to find out more about that particular piece of work can see the evaluation on the Social Care Innovation Programme website. So now, sticking with the theme of terminology, um, you are the head of the Contextual Safeguarding Programme, you basically invented it uh, and I uh, was going to introduce you as Queen of Contextual Safeguarding, that's not your official job title. Does it frustrate you as much as it concerns me (laughs) that people are using the term (laughs) Contextual Safeguarding? when they don't necessarily mean it or they are confused about what it means?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's concerning, I'd say, because what we're hoping is that it is a term that will describe an approach to assist people in developing their practice. So it is really important, particularly at this juncture where um, we do see it in statutory guidance, but we do see it Um, as something that we are in the process of developing and testing that the term is not diluted or used in other ways to the point that it becomes unrecognisable because we want it to be helpful. Um, I completely understand how this has happened. Um, Obviously in working together um, the term contextual safeguarding features above a paragraph on extra familial risk. So some in some, some occasions, it's being used as shorthand for all risks that we would associate as being outside of the family. So I guess the first thing to say is contextual safeguarding is not a risk. And it's not a shorthand for different types of risks. It is an approach to practice, so we wouldn't encourage the use of the term to describe
1: issues. So that's important. Contextual safeguarding is a verb and not a noun.
0: Indeed, that's the first thing. The second thing is that it is a particular approach to responding to extrafamilial risk and to responding to the context in which that risk occurs. So for an area to say they're doing contextual safeguarding, doing contextual safeguarding is not responding to extrafamilial risk. A lot of areas respond to extra familial risk in different ways some areas are developing a contextual safeguarding response to extrafamilial risk and to think about whether or not you're doing that we have helpfully now published a full implementation toolkit so you can think about the extent to which you're implementing the approach it is a whole systems change approach it is not an intervention or an add-on to a system it is changing the way the system works and primarily equipping a safeguarding partnership and children's social care specifically, to be able to assess and intervene with peer group, school and neighbourhood contexts. So the system needs to be able to do that, not just recognise those contexts, but actually assess and
1: intervene with them. And importantly, not only is Contextual Safeguarding uh, a set of quite defined practices and tools and methods, It's being tested through formal research, which you're leading.
0: Absolutely. So we've been testing it in Hackney, well, I would say developing and testing it in Hackney for two years, because in 2015, it was really just a concept. So we needed to work with an area to actually bring it to life, and that's been a helpful process. We'll now be working with five other local authorities to consider what would that approach look like in their areas with differing uh, kind of operational structures, different budgets, different geographies and demographics it is very much an approach not a model so we anticipate it looking very different achieving different things and um our our principle is really to publish as we go so we are just as soon as we create something putting it out there and saying this is what we're trying at the moment we're not quite sure and as we learn and um, if we start to find that there are particular elements of the toolkit that required significant change uh, we will amend as we go and so on and so forth. So we're being as transparent as we can, but it is absolutely a work in progress. It's not a silver bullet and never will be to anything. And we are keen for areas to get in touch with us if they want to develop the approach and we can provide some guidance as to how how to go about that. And it can be a drip feed process, but for any area that has contacted us so far to ask for assistance, and we are running a long list of areas at the moment, we're saying... We're giving it at least three years to be anywhere near doing it. It's not something you can do on a six-month task and finish
1: plan. And it's certainly not something you can say you're doing just because you've had a keynote speech at a conference, is No, it? no. <laughs> so that's a really, really important point about terminology. And I know that in the briefing you try and explain to people how contextual safeguarding, complex safeguarding, um, and the emerging notion of transitional safeguarding, which similarly is not a model, nor is it a set of practices. It's really just giving voice to a problem that everyone has known about, which is that harm nor its effects stop at 18. In the briefing, you try to highlight the role of families and young people themselves and communities Mm -hmm. as part of the solution. Do Mm -hmm. you want to say a couple of words on that?
0: Yes, I think it's really important, as we've already been discussing, first of all, we think about young people. This is a time in your life where you have an increasing desire for autonomy and decision making. So thinking about how we work with that, not battle against it or try and control young people's choices, but actually uh, think about how that's an opportunity uh, to sustain impacts beyond the time that we might have with a young person is really important. And so we've drawn upon some examples of organisations that are working alongside young people, supporting them to have voice. In in multi-agency meetings but also in the design of their plans and in kind of the decision-making around their care so that's been really important in terms of parents we are seeing uh, more support groups for parents being set up uh, we obviously have some national organizations that we highlight in the briefing who are working alongside parents and often run by parents uh, to support them in understanding how the system is responding at the moment and why that is and how it could be different and how they could be seen as Uh, partners in working alongside uh, social workers, police officers, youth workers in supporting young people to stay safe. We're also seeing some really interesting work in some areas um, who are bringing parents together, it's kind of quite obvious, but bringing parents together um, to see how they can provide peer support to one another to support their young people who are a peer group or who are socialising together. Because parenting during adolescence is hard and what some parents are saying is we just need some recognition of that and some space to voice that and work together. So it's parents as partners with one another as well as with partners with with professionals and then thinking about obviously the role of community in all of this, particularly given the public nature of some of these risks we have to think about the roles that could be played by security staff bus drivers Um, we've seen um, interesting work in australia uh, working with rubbish collectors in local parks Uh, so a range of different people potentially playing a role in being active community guardians or really engaging in creating safe space for young people
1: and that seems so important because we know that for um young people and for you know some children before they reach adolescence, their roots to harm and their roots to protection might be um, outside of their family context. So thinking about how communities can be mobilised uh, as a source of protection, as well as recognising that's where harm and risks it seems you know, blindingly obvious when you say it. Um, yeah. I'm often struck. It might even be one of your examples, perhaps that I'm uh, misquoting here, that. Um, if many of your young people you're worried about are spending their time in a fast food restaurant because that's where the free Wi-Fi is, um, why why is no one in that fast food restaurant getting level one child protection yeah. training? Yeah. You know they're certainly not being invited to sit around the locals safeguarding partnership yeah. table
0: yeah and this is why uh questions strategic questions uh, need to be answered because what we're not suggesting and, and i would be anxious if it was interpreted as such is that what we want to just create is this massive influx of referrals from everyone under the sun who's now got their eyes out for young people and got you know the front door on speed dial and then you're going to have to manage this massive increase in referrals from Um, a range of agencies but it's actually thinking how do we support those people to identify what their role could be um, in creating safety for young people where they are and obviously making a referral when it's required but that's not really it it's about when they're with us what do we do to create safety here so that we don't need to pick up the phone actually and then what are the occasions when we would need to pick up the
1: phone so this is actually about kind of uh, core citizenship yes. values, it's not about creating uh, an influx of um, requests yeah. for statutory yeah. help. Yeah, absolutely.
0: So just to say, for example, thinking about bus drivers, yes, if there are concerns we'd want them to, to flag them, but actually just thinking, are you letting young people on the bus? Um, say they have... Saying their their pass has been stolen, are you believing them and letting them on, or are you telling them to get off? You know, do you know that someone could be watching particular bus routes, seeing kids being thrown off and offering them a lift home instead because you haven't let them on? Do you know that sometimes young people's travel cards are stolen and they're told come and collect it and I'll give I'll give it back if you do this or if you do that for me? So actually enabling them to travel home from school. And not seeing them as a problem the moment they get on the bus because they're a teenager is part of the safeguarding agenda as well as just pick, as well as picking up the phone when you 've got concerns and you 've got to work with uh, communities to understand what those roles could be. You can't tell them to say what are some of the interactions you might have and how
1: could yes. that happen differently. And it strikes me, as you're describing some of those things, that one of the challenges that we need to address as a whole society is that we have very little understanding of adolescent development. Absolutely. So whereas in early years, um, there's a you know, very good, very strong understanding of child development, and most of our services for the under fours are designed with an explicit recognition of child development. Most parents would understand that I have to let my toddler fall over because that's how they learn to walk. Mm. And yet in adolescence, many parents and carers and professionals really struggle with the, the mm-hmm. analogy would be how do I let my teenager fall over because it's going to they're have them to walk so uh, age and stage appropriate risk um, is quite difficult mm-hmm. to contend with. Uh, most people sat in a cafe would understand why a one-year-old is crying many people sat on a bus don't understand why a 15-year-old is swearing. Yeah. Um, so there's a kind of society-wide mm-hmm. misconception about adolescent development and I wonder if you see that play out.
0: Absolutely um, and uh, recently in when we've uh, kind of been piloting location assessments one of the things that's happened in one assessment where a young person uh, was at risk, their home had been shot at, there have been stabbings in the estate they lived on, was a survey of residents about their concerns and through that survey of residents and representation from residents at a conference to discuss the findings of that assessment what we saw was a shift in language from those residents who started to recognize the vulnerability of the young people who were experiencing that harm whereas prior to that they had only seen them as young people who were bringing trouble to the estate and they wanted them out they had no interest in them being there they started to think about how could they keep them there how could they keep the family there how could they keep that young person on the estate by helping them to understand what was going on there
1: so that's a really important point for us to kind of end on. That what we're talking about and what you set out um, well in this briefing is that for change um, to happen in this field, we need policy change, we need local practice and strategy change, we may indeed need legislative change. Although as we record this, we're in the midst of the final weeks of Brexit. So who knows if we'll ever have any legislation changed ever again. Um, But also, really importantly, professional and public societal uh, culture change, attitudinal change. This is Hearts and Minds as much as its policies and structures. Absolutely. Thank you ever so much. It's been really great to talk to you, as it always is. Um, I would really encourage listeners to look at the Contextual Safeguarding Network. I believe I'm still right in saying they can make an account for free Absolutely. and download the resources yeah. and use them. But as we've been warned, please think responsibly, folks, when you engage with contextual safeguarding materials. It's been a pleasure, Carmen. Thanks very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the Research and Practice podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and share your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP. Thanks for listening.